Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So another tweet, another takedown of the Federal Reserve. The president saying if the Fed had done its job properly, which it has not, the stock market would have been up 5,000 to 10,000 additional points. Quantitative tightening was a killer. We should have done the exact opposite. To weigh in, a man that doesn't need much of an introduction, it's Ian Bremmer, Eurasia Group president. Ian, great to see you. Good to be with you. Let's just talk about the independence of the Federal Reserve and to what extent that's being damaged at the moment. Um, there's no question that Trump's tweets uh, are undermining the way we think about the Fed. But Jay Powell uh, is very much a capable, qualified, and independent chief. Uh, and that that's, certainly nobody is making the argument that his decisions have been undermined or politically skewed by Trump. I think the bigger question has been the recent move by Trump to push Stephen Moore and Herman Cain as Fed board members. I mean, these are I mean, Stephen Moore's economic capabilities make AOC look like a strong economist, right? So you would, this, this isn't, the, I mean, I'm a political scientist and, I, and I, I, it's pretty clear to me that these are not people you want on the board. But, um, but I do think that uh, if Trump were to win in 2020 uh, and he decides to get rid of Jay Powell at that point, which, you know, has not, that, that's not really been tested um, in, uh, as like so many things in the Trump administration, then I think we could be having a different conversation. Well, let's talk about how durable the institution is. Do you think it is likely, even possible for that matter, that the president can get rid of the chairman of the Federal Reserve? Uh, I think it's possible uh, at after four years, uh, I do, uh, and I, I think that that would be difficult um, to uh, with, with Repu- if Republicans are also um, you know sort of a majority at that point in Senate, and certainly if Trump wins, you think that would be the case. It's hard to see a lot of yelling and screaming about it. I had to find the blue button. The blue button is for Chelsea Blue. Well, it's good to see you. It's good. It's good Chelsea to be FC. here. There you go, um, Ian. Okay, Fed independence and all that, but it's within an international architecture. Right now, what John and I hear interview to interview is the separateness of domestic economies versus all the international back and forth. Do you buy that separateness or is that just a a thing of the moment? We should bundle it all together. I mean, look, you look at the ECB and you see a process that is actually not being politicized, uh, even though many people said it would. It actually is, you know, being handled by uh, bureaucratic uh, coalition to put to ensure that you have a, a new technocratic head. Um, I, you know, the, the, the Chinese are not moving towards um, a a floatable currency, and so you don't think of the PBOC um, as being one of the important central banks in how the world manages uh, flows of currencies. I mean, if you look at all of the ways that the geopolitical order has been fragmenting in the last 25 years, central banks have not been one of them. That's actually one of the places where you would say the world looks more like the old American-led order than in any other area. 
I, I mean, the central banks are there, but the, the arch question for our listeners is, is Chairman Powell central banker to the world? And, you know, you look at the IMF meetings, which have devolved from multilateralism down to whatever Mr. Trump would like. Has Mr. Powell's act changed because of it? Is he is he less multilateral than he used to be? Um, yeah, I guess I would say no. I think that Trump doesn't impact Powell very much. What What is true yeah. is that the United States is more relevant economically compared to the Europeans, right? And the fact that the <clears throat> Europeans feel in disarray, the fact right. that the UK is neither in nor out, the fact that the Germans and French are weaker than they were, in our <clears throat> part of the world, the United yeah. States is increasingly the quote-unquote rule setter. And what's stunning, John, is the dollar range Range is now a four-year range, which I didn't realize till this morning. I thought it was two, three-year. In range. more respect, BDDXY, the Bloomberg right. Dollar Index, has been churning for four years after that big jump up. I mean, I mean, to to, to Mr. Trump's tweet. I mean, we haven't seen dollars. Are you expecting the president to go after the FX market again? Is that what you? No, I'm just saying that that. Usually with the comments that you get from President Trump in the last 48 hours, you'd want to see a, a substantial dollar strength there. And well, it's let's, not there well, let's talk about what actually is happening. I mean, the perception of independence hasn't been damaged because the perception of independence will be defined by our guests, not by us sitting around this table. It's market participants. Do they think something has changed at the Fed? I don't see that yeah, in the market right don't. now. That's not in the price. They don't. And they don't for a range of reasons. One of them is that they don't think, some of them don't think, that these individuals that have been nominated recently... A, will officially be nominated in the first place. B, will actually be confirmed. And C, if they are confirmed, will have much influence on the FOMC. And all those three things play into this. One thing has changed. What's changed is that the American economy feels softer now than it did six months ago. And as yeah. a, even though the unemployment numbers are very low, job creation is good, but people are not as excited about the growth. And that means Trump needs to look for people to blame. And the Fed is one of many, but one of one of his primary targets right now. And that's going to continue to be the case as long as the U.S. economy looks soft. As we get into the election cycle, that's only going to become more urgent for Trump. I don't think that changes the way market participants think about the Fed. Ian, let's wrap up this conversation by talking about a concept you introduced a long time ago, the J-curve, the robustness of institutions, the openness of developed markets, and the reason why we're successful relative to the complete opposite. Update us on that thinking now. So here, it's a very different conversation than the one we've just had on the Fed, which is that most institutions in the West have gotten gradually weaker less stable over the course of the last couple of decades. That means that the United States, which used to be very stable because it's very open, is becoming a little bit more fragmented, a little bit more closed, and a little bit less stable. Other countries like France with their uh, you know, yellow vest movement um, and Macron looking very weak, they, they've slipped even farther down the J-curve. The countries that haven't slipped much at all would be Germany and perhaps the least would be Japan. But across all of the advanced industrial democracies, the trend has been these political institutions are becoming a little more closed and a little bit less stable. If you were to rewrite the book right now, what would the first couple of pages read like? The first couple pages would uh, talk about a J that looks a little bit more like a U. In other words, there's a little bit less advantage to being an open, advanced industrial democracy today Interesting. than there was 20 years ago. And one of the big reasons for that is technology. When I wrote the book, 
technology was a trend that undermined authoritarian regimes. It led to colored revolutions in the Arab Spring, and it strengthened liberal democracies. Today, when we talk about the data revolution and surveillance, it pushes towards supporting those authoritarian regimes that have control of that data, can do the surveillance, and it undermines and fragments some of the advanced industrial democracies. So, so what John's suggesting is your next book is an update on the J-curve. No, he's not suggesting that. No, I that. think Ian oh. might be suggesting that. <laughs> <laughs> but Dr. it Brothers does require an update 15 <clears throat> years out. There's no question. Hey, Ian, thank you. <laughs> Good to be with you guys. Wonderful. Ian Bremer, Eurasia Group president there. Global Wall Street Chat of the Day. We can do that with Fred Cannon of Keith Brietton Woods, where he runs the research shop as well. John and I have like two hours of conversation, which we're going to squeeze into six minutes uh, here. Fred Cannon, when's a bank roll-up happened? I mean, not that we're going to Canadize American banking. We saw the SunTrust merger. When's the roll-up really begin with the, the vengeance? That scale begins. It really, it's already there, Tom. I mean, if you look at what happened during the financial crisis, that was the roll-up. The biggest four banks in the U.S. control 50% of the, you know, the market today. Um, beyond that, we are seeing some roll-up, and we'll continue to see that. The BB&T SunTrust deal may be the biggest deal we will have in this cycle, but there'll be a lot of deals underneath that size. We're starting to see MOEs. We're starting to see a lot of these. What's, whoa, whoa what's an MOE? There's, there's Larry. <laughs> well, there's all, Curly. What's an MOE? <laughs> Well, first of all, having been in this industry for a long time, we have to know there's no such thing as a merger of equals. But yet the structure of putting two banks of equal size together um, is is one that um, is increasingly, folks are looking at it as a way to consolidate yeah. the industry. So when, when, when MOE was discussed yesterday at home, that's what that meant. Were you talking about your marriage? A merger of equals, yeah. Was it a merger of equals? Oh, no. <laughs> Rarely found in the wild. Continue with Mr. Kim. <laughs> hey, Fred, earnings. Goldman Sachs out in about 10 minutes' time. A little bit after that, we're going to get City as well. We had JP Morgan on Friday. Where are you laser-focused? Uh, well, look, I think on the capital market side, I think we're just going to see beating low expectations. Coming into the quarter, everybody cut their estimates. We saw out of uh, JP Morgan on Friday beating those reduced expectations. Still not a great quarter. I think where we're really focused beyond that, especially on City, is net interest margins. What's really happening because of this yield curve? That's kind of the dynamics that everybody's fascinated on. And, and when will when will we see net interest margins roll over at the bank? There's been an obsession with the yield curve, but the yield curve has been narrowing, flattening over the last couple of years. Net interest margins have been expanding. It's not actually been a good read on bank profitability. What has been is the trajectory of interest rates. Interest rates go higher. Income has been going north. And now we have this situation with the Federal Reserve where interest rates aren't going higher anymore, at least for the time being. So I'm wondering where the growth comes from. Where does it come from? Well, you're exactly right. The real growth is coming at the big banks from share repurchase. We calculate 67% of the, sh of the growth in uh, earnings this year is going to come from share repurchase at the wow. big banks. Is that good? Well, is that, is well, that un-American? <laughs> I, I, mean, I remember Dick Kovacevic at Wells Fargo called to sign a defeat to repurchase shares. In other words, you can't find yeah, something John, else for it. You were mentioning in the break. It's more like a utility. We got cash. Give it back. Well, it raises a, an important question. The lot, a lot of people who are bullish to banks aren't bullish on the earnings. They're bullish on the multiple. They think the multiple will re-rate higher. But if the earnings are going to be juiced by what some people would call financial engineering, let's just call it capital returns. Fred, if it's going to be juiced by that, 
is it deserving of a higher multiple? Well, if you look at the multiples today, we're trading at late cycle bank earnings multiples. It's happened before. It happened in 2000, happened in 2008, happened in uh, a number of time periods. In other words, why are banks trading these multiples today? Because expectations are that earnings have peaked and that we're going to see a downward pressure. That downward pressure is going to come from credit, not from interest mm -hmm. rates. And that's the concern. Your bank guys, I know, Fred, you're above it all at 60,000 feet, but your banking team at KBW, what are they like right now in terms of buy, hold, sell? What quality of bank do they like right now? Well, we really, because of those multiples, we like the high quality banks. You like we, the we, big guys that are way behind. We like the big guys that are the quality. I mean, look, you have to kind of keep going with JP Morgan at this point in time. B of A has <clears> turned into a quality institution. We wouldn't have said that five or six years ago. Um, so you're looking at the, at the big banks with quality, and then you're looking at, this, at the commercial banks right. who can continue to grow. Does Wells Fargo get their act together? You know, I was thinking the other day, it was, you know, I mean, uh, five years ago, Wells Fargo was the go-to bank in the U.S. Um, it's not today. It took Tiger Woods 11 years to come back. We'll see if it takes uh, oh, Wells Fargo nice that long. Oh, nice there. Fred Cannon with the golf. Fred, what's the name you're most worried about? Uh, in the U.S., we don't really worry. The, the bank's balance sheets are strong. The capital's strong. Uh, we don't see um, a big hiccups. I am worried a bit about the kind of expectations that some of these traditional savings and loan like New York Community Bank are going to, you know, their stocks have done very well this year. I think that might be a mystery. Hey, Fred, great to catch up with you. Wonderful. Fred Cannon there, KBW Global Director of Research. The takeaway over the last hour, I'd say, Tom, is as follows. If you compare it to the estimates, we're okay. If you compare it year on year, it's as dreadful as everyone thought it would be. Let's bring in Shanae Basek, shall we? Bloomberg banking reporter. She joins us in the interactive broker studios here in New York City. Shanae, your take, please. Sure. It's a pretty messy quarter, and what we're going to be waiting for is what things look like going forward. For Goldman Sachs, in their presentation so far, they've highlighted all the changes they're making, right? So that doesn't mean, hey, you know, look at how great we did in mergers, for example. It's, hey, look at our Apple partnership and let's see where that's going. And so, you know, people are going to be wondering whether they were blaming the government shutdown for a lot of the weak performance in the first quarter. But there's some places that there's some real questions. Yeah. John, you nailed it 20 minutes ago by saying revenues are constrained. What I see throughout the first six pages of their PowerPoint is low single-digit revenue growth in different subsets. There are some idiosyncratic <clears throat> reasons yeah. for why revenues were constrained in the first quarter, specifically the government shutdown holding back IPO Shanali. Let's talk about where we will be less constrained in the next few months. Is that a pocket, an area where they will be? IPOs is a great thing to bring up because Goldman Sachs is on Slack. JP Morgan was on Lyft. There's Uber around the corner. So IPO fees should jump back quite do a they, bit. Do they move the needle on banks that big? Come on. You know, that's the thing. No, right? I mean, it's <laughs> I mean, great to talk about. It's great cocktail right. talk. But, but we're at a point in the yeah. banking cycle where we're looking at every business line very aggressively and seeing for any signs of strength. And yeah. you know, that's exactly at a place where it's constrained. Buried at the last page, conclusions. Buried at the second to the last line. While maintaining expense discipline. Do you have, even, come on, it's April now. We're into the summer ballet. How many bodies are going to walk out the door at various and sundry? Hundreds, hundreds everywhere in very many decisions, in very many divisions. Uh, another place that nobody really talked about this morning is investment management. Goldman also has one of the biggest I asset managers in the world. I talked about that. 
Did you talk about it? We talked about it. We talked about it for 35 seconds. Which is better than 25 seconds. Well, look at it. It was really interesting. They bought in more assets, but they took in lower fees, which shows you, even for Goldman Sachs, it's a race to the bottom in asset management when you're just taking in lower fees. And and JP Morgan already said they're cutting um, staff in that division as well. And both of those divisions are over Mm -hmm. a trillion dollars, some of the biggest on Wall Street. City unchanged in the pre-market, dead flat. We had a boost of bank stocks. On Friday, the read across was from JP Morgan. It gave the whole sector a little bit of a lift, but off the back of these earnings, City doing absolutely nothing. Shanali, thank you and happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you very much. Shanali Basak there, our Bloomberg banking reporter. Good time to speak to Diane Swank. She's with Grant Thornton. Has just just does your woman's duty for us on Fed Day, uh, where she she gives us wonderful perspective on the central bank. Diane, I want to go into the nitte gritte around the National Association of Business Economists, which is all this data we're getting, and then we've got this massive divide in what we see from guests. Have you ever seen this before? Is this normal that we're seeing? a mystery on the data, and then two disparate views on what the central bank will do? You know, I think what's going on is, one, we have seen it before. You see it at tipping points in the economy when you start to get cross-currents. The question is, are we at a tipping point or not? Also, I think it's really important to keep perspective out there that, you know, when you're in a position where the underlying economy is doing well but slowing, you always worry about how close you're coming to thin ice. And so even though it looks like the underlying economy is still solid, we worry about those soft patches out there. And the Federal Reserve is Hedging the downside risks of going through the ice and stepping back to the sidelines, which in and of itself, yeah. that move to the sidelines, signals that the Fed may be more worried than okay. people thought. Well, this is critical. If there's one Fed, if there's one rate cut to come, or let's say it's asymmetric, two rate cuts, rate rises to come, what is the distinctive data factor that gets someone to two rate rises versus someone looking for one rate cut? You know, that's really interesting. I think at this stage of the game, because the Fed has so been wrong on inflation, it thought we'd get to 3% wage growth and sustained 3% wage growth would give us sustained 2% on their target inflation. That has failed. We've fallen short on that after accelerating core inflation has actually decelerated. And so I think we need to see not only a sustained 2% reach on the target of inflation to get those rate hikes out there, but we need to see an overshoot on inflation for the Fed to feel comfortable that they've really achieved their mandate. And their mandate's getting much more nuanced as well. Full employment doesn't just mean an unemployment rate anymore. As it's been evolving over several years, it's all now also now the employment to population share, the share of labor income that we're seeing in the economy, which has not moved up enough for the Fed to feel comfortable at this stage. And Diane, our good colleague Matt Bosler here at Bloomberg doing a nice little write-up on that today. Uh, I suggest a lot of people reach out to Matt. If not, just take a read of it. It's really interesting. And the push, Diane... I read it too. The push, Diane, <laughs> seems, to be coming, the push seems to be coming from Vice Chair Rich Clarida. So how important is this push and how will it shape the Federal Reserve's reaction function 
in the coming well, year? Well, I think it's, it's really important, John. And, you know, the issue is, I, I was, you know, I have to say that it's evolutionary, not revolutionary, and it's not as unique as, you know, it was pointed out in the article, because I know the Fed has been looking <laughs> at this issue for a long time, as have economists for decades, looking at the issue of how labor has lost its bargaining power, and that's hurting the labor share of income. We saw it in Janet Yellen's dashboard. So this has been something the Fed has been trying to incorporate. I think Rich has taken it to a new level as vice chair of the Fed, and really we're coming together and we're looking at it quite carefully on how do we incorporate it more into the decision role in understanding where the Fed's been wrong on inflation. And I think that's a very important move going forward is understanding not just employment, not just these aggregate, very, you know, basic tools of the economy, but getting the dirt is in the details. And Clarita in doing this is trying to make the decision much more of a, a process that's more inclusive. And I think that's very important. Diane, just to put you on the spot a little bit, is Vice Chair Rich Clarida running the Fed right now? <laughs> no. But we don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, you can put me on the spot all you want. No, Rich Clarida is not running the Fed right now. Jay Powell is running the Fed right now. And nor is the president running the Fed. Jay Powell is running the Fed right now. I have no qualms about that whatsoever. But this is a really strong Federal Reserve Board at the moment. And I think that really deserves a lot of credit. It's not always been as strong of a board with as um, broad base of opinions in different specialties. I think, you know, sort of this pushback on nominees to the Fed Board is not about Elitism. It's about having diversity of thought that's informed for the skills of the job, mm. knowing um, regulation. What does that mean for the economy? Having experience in that. Um, knowing, it's, you know, when I look at the Fed board yeah. today, I really look at a board that is well qualified. And Rich Kalita's, you know, stepping out is really um, evidence of that. But we've had yeah. many strong vice chairmen. Janet Yellen was a vice chairman. Alice Rivlin was a vice chairman. Alan Blinder, you know, Roger Ferguson, non-economist vice chairman. So this strength in the Fed board is mm. really critical right Diane now. Diane Swank, thank you so Diane, much. Diane, thank you. Thornton. Always great really, to really catch up with Diane. Really Diane great, Swank great there, Grant Thornton, the chief economist yeah. over there. Let us listen to some golf history. Back behind the ball, Woods puts it. And in! He has done it! Tiger is back! Tiger is back on top! Tiger Woods, the 2019 Masters champion! And there it is. Let us have a real golfer talk to a real sports guy. Paul Sweeney, why don't you bring in the extinguished gentleman? Evan Novi williams covers all things sports for Bloomberg News. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Evan, I got to tell you, I watched every single shot of the tournament yesterday. I can't remember the last time I did that. And the only reason I did that is because of Tiger Woods. How important is he to the game of golf and how important was yesterday? Yeah, you're not alone. It's funny. It's been 11 years since Tiger last won a Grand Slam or a major. It feels like the sport is as reliant on him today as it was back in 2008. You know, back then we were talking about the, you know, the 30 to 50 percent ratings jump that always happens when he's in contention. You know, he had a, a, a rough 10 years, but flash forward, we're still talking about it, right? Yeah. You're not alone. Most people watched yesterday because Tiger Woods uh, was doing well, and they're going to watch moving forward to see if he can sustain this. Golf is similarly reliant on Tiger now as it was 10 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's been, you know, 10 years, as you mentioned, and so many great young players have come into the game. Uh, but it's just, a, it's interesting to see how, you know, the, you could just feel it on 
Twitter and on other social media yesterday how different yesterday was. What'll be interesting to see will be to what extent did the big A-list sponsors come back to Tiger Woods? I noticed, you know, the last time he won, I think, you know, AT&T was on his bag. And this time it's Monster Energy. Not that that's not a big brand, but it's not AT&T. So be interested to see kind of how the sponsors come back to Tiger. Yeah, he lost, you know, in that stretch where he was having, you know, obvious personal problems and also physical injury problems. He lost a lot of sponsors, right? You mentioned AT&T. Gillette, Accenture, Gatorade, you know, some of those big brands that were associated with him either dropped him outright or or decided they weren't going to renew with him. Nike, the one company, probably the one that people most associate with Tiger. He's still with them from a clothing standpoint, but they've stopped making balls. They stopped making bags. They stopped making clubs. You know, he's needed to to find new partners uh, for all those things. Saturday ratings, I believe, of 5%, but Sunday must be incalculable. We don't know yet those numbers, do we? Yeah, we don't know the numbers yet. The thing that's going to make it a little more difficult is because the weather, the weather concerns, they moved it up. Yeah, Yeah, so so Tiger teed off at 6.30 a.m. West Coast time. Um, so, you know, that's going to hurt ratings a little bit. The fact that, um, the fact that for, for people on the West coast, they, you know, they probably weren't awake when he started, but I would imagine the final couple hours of that telecast were, were, were bonkers ratings. At the end of it, I noticed Mr. Roberts of NBC universal getting some FaceTime as Tiger came off the green to hug family and all. Does CBS have a lock on the masters or is this going to be the mother of all bidding bidding wars whenever that comes up it's an interesting question they they do have a lock on the masters but it's not a traditional media rights deal like we're used to you know cbs doesn't you know pay a 10-year mass monster million dollar deal for the masters they have a handshake agreement every year where essentially they give the cost it takes to put the put the production on and the master says okay and then they get their sponsors to to pay the difference so by most accounts cbs gets a, a tremendous bargain on the masters, you know, they can't sell ads in the same ways because if you watch the telecast yesterday, there's very few commercials. There's really only, which I love. There's really only three partners. It's like soccer. I agree. I think it's fantastic, but it's, it's just not the same kind of economic model that you see for something like the Super Bowl, right? Where, where there's millions of dollars paid for the rights and then you have to get, you know, get that money back on millions of dollars of ads. Well, I remember a story we were talking about last week. I think uh, somebody kind of came in the last minute, put down an $82,000 bet on Tiger Woods at 14 to one. Scott Soshnick. Not a a bad wager, right? (laughs) So, I mean, but I understand that the bookies didn't do well here, not just with that bet. Yeah, it's funny. For the past 10 years, Tiger Woods has been, you know, the best thing going for bookies, right? People continuously bet him. You know, he would enter tournaments where he had no shot of winning. They'd put the odds at 150 to one and tons of people would wager it, right? Uh, So they've made millions off of Tiger Woods in the past 10 years. And, and I've right. talked to these bookmakers and they say, listen, if he ever wins a major again, well, we're going to lose big on that major. And it happened, right? He, he's so popular uh, th- this better, you know, $1.2 million payout that, that he won. Um, most books that I talked okay. to yesterday. Yeah. They took a wash on this one. I mean, you two guys know way more about this than I do. I, I figured out Ricky Fowler wears orange. That's, that's <laughs> yep. about where I got, got it. Yeah. Where of the group that was out there was great. Like six people vying for it. Where's the next tiger. I mean, is, which is there, of these guys is, is Tiger? Is there ever going to be an ex Tiger? I mean, who knows? Yeah, I, I think there, there's certainly an argument to be made that that no one will ever, just because of a his dominance, you know, his unique background, that there are that there may never be another one of him, right? And and you know, none of these guys, McElroy, Spieth, Brooks Kepka, they've all had moments, but none of them have been able to sustain dominance in the way that that Tiger did. Um, but they also just might not be as marketable or as compelling a story as him. Um, I think there's a chance that we just never have 
the it guy for golf yeah. ever again. So it's interesting. I wonder if um, you, know, you think about some of these other players. Um, is the expectation that for Tiger this was kind of a flash in the pan kind of weekend? It all came together, or at the age of forty-three, you know, as you. Do you think he can make another multi-year run at this thing and maybe even challenge the Jack Nicholas 18 major kind of thing? It certainly seems possible. I mean, I'm, I'm not a X's and O's golf guy, really, right. to mix metaphors. But yeah, I mean, he, he's 43, you're right. So he's not he's not young. Right. And physically, you know, he's always, he's been fairly brittle the past 10 years. I mean, I imagine, you know, his body's not doing him any favors right now. But, you know, he just won, you know, the, 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 the biggest stage and, and the most important tournament of the year. I would imagine that he will, as, as long as he can stay healthy, continue to compete at least this year and, and, and for a couple more years moving forward. And I would think everyone in the golf world is would love that, right? I mean, if he right. continue, if he has another banner year, if he moves up into the top 10 and higher and higher, I would think if you're NBC or CBS or the Golf Channel or you know Nike yep. or even TaylorMade or, or companies that work in golf that don't even sponsor him, yeah. Adidas, for example, I imagine they'd be thrilled as well. In sports, there's always these people that go longer. Uh, Chris Chelios, who played for the Detroit Red Wings, sure. maybe is one example. Some other baseball players as well. I think of Tom Watson in golf, who just delivered and delivered. Does Tiger Woods have the kind of game where he can be a fossil and compete? Yeah, I think the big question is the extent to which the the physical toll on his body, what what that means when he's, is it when, when he's is in it his the late forties, or is it putting? You know what 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 is the determinant? Yeah, it's, for him it's to more get the t-shirt. I mean, Tiger Tiger revolutionized kind of the way golfers train physically, right? I mean, he yeah. he looked differently than almost any other golfer ever. Um, and the reason he needed to be that big is because of the you know the tremendous torque that he was putting on his body, um, and he's paid for that in in, in recent years uh so yeah I, I don't know if you know the fact that a guy like tom watson you know he, he played so well so later possibly because you know just his swing and the wear and tear on his body was was less than it than it was for tiger woods um that i, I think remains to be seen but you know it's no question that at 43 uh, and despite four back surgeries in the past couple of years, uh, Tiger remains, you know, wow. one of the top players on tour. And I think they've actually, we're going to be able to get to see Tiger in another major sooner than we typically will because they've changed up the schedule mm -hmm. this year, right, Evan? Yeah, the PGA is moving up. Uh, okay. So the next major will be the PGA. Oh. I, think, I think it's in May. Yeah. Um, okay, so cool. yeah, we're and that's out another... of Bethpage <clears throat> State Park. So you could take the Sikorsky out there, Tom. and. And we could do that. I yeah. can see you and Lisa out there. Right. I mean, you know, dates. I mean, nobody gets up in golf before nine a.m. Right. I could see you and Lisa out there sure. doing that. I, that's a that's a capital idea. A yeah. couple of years ago, Beth Page had another major. I don't know if it was the U.S. Open or the PGA, um, and there was a media availability to play the course. And so it was, you know, it was like a week or two weeks before the, yeah. the pros got here. And the, I've never seen rough like that. I, I knew the course was obviously harder yeah. than it is on like a normal weekend. <clears throat> the rough was, you know, it felt like it was six inches <laughs> yeah. long. I couldn't even find my ball. It was two inches Very off the fairway. Good. Evan Obi Williams uh, on uh, what an exciting moment for golf and for sport yesterday uh, as well. Of course, look for uh, Bloomberg Business Sports. They do a great job across all the different sports as well. Paul, what's the biggest rough you've ever played in? Uh, probably, you know, just like uh, Evan mentioned, the Bethpage Black, it's the hardest yeah. course I've ever played. And it's interesting. It's uh, it's the people's course. It's a public course. And uh, and the yeah. pros love it. They, they love the New York vibe. They love the New York, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, just the crowds are there. And uh, it's yeah. just a great, great course and a great tournament. Yeah, so the PGA is coming back. So it'll be uh, great for the New York market. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.